Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Michael Holtzman. He published a book in October 2021, which I read. Very fascinating book. Title of the book is Spies and Traitors. Kim Philby, James Angleton, and the friendship and betrayal that would shape MI6, the CIA, and the Cold War. And Michael Holtzman, last name is spelled H-O-L-S-Z, H-O-L-Z-M-A-N. He's written many other books. Titles are Lucas's, Lukacs' Road to God, also Writing as Social Action. Another title is James Jesus Angleton, The CIA and the Craft of Counterintelligence, which ties into this book. Guy Burgess, Revolution, Revolutionary in an Old School Tie, also ties into this book. Another title is The Black Poverty Cycle, How to End It. Another one is Donald and Melinda McLean, Idealism and Espionage ties into this book. The Chains of Black America, also the language of anti-communism, three-fifths of an education, and then two novels. One title is Mary Blair West, and another is Pax, 1934 to 1941. And Michael Holtzman was born in Brookings, South Dakota. He's just completing writing another nonfiction book. title of that is The Anglo-American Cold War, as well as another novel. And he lives in Briarcliff Manor, New York. And his website is his full name, Michael, H-O-L-Z-M-A-N.com. So, Michael Holtzman, welcome to the show. Thanks for bringing to the interview. Thank you for having me on. Awesome. For people who may not have known your name, your other books, or your background, can you kind of talk about the arc of all the books you've written and what led you to publish and write and publish this book, Spies and Traitors? I was actually uh, interested in the issue of how education affects people in their later life. And there was, in the little circles I have moved in, a well-known example, uh, which was that in the late 1930s, the Ivy League schools tried to indoctrinate their undergraduates with the idea that uh, history didn't matter, that uh, when you read novels or Shakespeare, that what was going on at the time that they were written had nothing to do with your interpretation of things. And it seemed to me that that had all kinds of implications. If you don't know about history, if you think history is not important, that might have an effect on, on the way that you live or the way that you conduct yourself. I stumbled on this example that there was this fellow, James Jesus Angleton, who had been at Yale in the very late 1930s. And he had been kind of a star uh, as an undergraduate of this sort of thing. He ran a literary magazine that was probably the best literary magazine by an undergraduate that has ever been published named Furiosa. He was a good friend of many of the leading poets at the time including Ezra Pound. After he uh, graduated, he, he entered the Office of Special Services, which was the predecessor of the CIA, and he had a career there. And it seemed to me that it'd be quite interesting to see that if the way he was indoctrinated at Yale uh, actually had an effect on the way he conducted his life. So I wrote a biography of him, James Faces Angles and the Crafts. The CIA craft and counterintelligence. And then one thing leads to another, as you know. 
and I found out about a British man named uh, Guy Burgess, who was uh, significant in British uh, government and uh, espionage circles in the late 30s and 40s, and a very, very colorful character. He turned out to be a friend of Kim Philby. And Kim Philby and Guy Burgess were friends of the McLean's. Uh, so there's three books. And then uh, I, wanted, I got some more information about both Philby and Angleton, and I wanted to update uh, what I had done. So I wrote this book, which in England is called Kim and Jim. And uh, my wife decided it would be a sexier title here to have spies and traders. So the, the publisher agreed with me. So that's what we have. Go uh, on. And so you kind of put this up. You had these backgrounds. You can tell you've in, you've integrated knowledge from your earlier three books, separate books on some of these characters into this. But you take it all the way back, kind of really at their even talking about their parents, uh, their fathers influencing these two characters. And that's an interesting story in itself. Maybe you can talk about the fathers of these two people, Kim Philby and James Ankleton. Sure. Kim Philby uh, went into intelligence work as into a family business. The official who hired him remarked that he was a good candidate as we knew his people. Kim Philby's father, Sinjin Philby, had begun as a typical product of the imperial ruling class of the early 20th century. He was born in Ceylon, schooled in expensive English schools. He attended Trinity College, Cambridge, and then he passed the extremely rigorous examination to qualify for the India Civil Service. At this time, uh, India, with its millions of people, was, I guess politely we'll say, governed by a couple thousand British civil servants. Um, and they had to pass uh, language exams, they had to be able to ride a horse. And they were sent out to uh, India at a, a remarkably young age and given incredible responsibilities. So you would have a 25-year-old who was responsible for a province in India and who was both a judge and a sheriff, as it were, at the same time. So Sinjin Philby uh, had many, many languages. He ascended a ladder of assignments with increasing responsibility in India. Then with World War I, he was appointed to sub-pro-counselor roles in the Middle East. He was sent to Iraq, uh, which the British occupied during the First World War. He became chief financial officer there. And he also played a role that was similar to that of T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. He was sent out to Saudi Arabia to make contact with one of the tribal leaders, Ibn Saud, as T.E. Lawrence was sent out to uh, make contact with the Husseins. As a matter of fact, I once found correspondence between uh, T.E. Lawrence and his uh, commanding officer and 
uh, Sinjin Philby and his commanding officer, and they were the same commanding officer. <laughs> so they're, they're dividing up the Hara Peninsula between them. And they knew the same people, so they knew Ibn Saud and also the Hashemites as well, right? Yes. ISIL. So they, they yeah. were in that same environment. Yeah. And at this time, the British Empire had a quarter of the population of the world in it. We're not talking about England at all. And the government of the empire had as one of its provinces England. Uh, and they, they probably thought it was the most important province. But in a certain structural way, from the point of view of the people who ran the empire, it was one more province. They were trying, they, they, during the war, they, they were trying to defeat the Ottoman Turks. A way to defeat the Ottoman Turks was to detach the Arabs, and we had the Arab revolt, which is famous from TV lines. Uh, St. John Philby, Kim Philby's father, was an anti imperialist. He got very uh, upset about the way that the British were dealing with uh, the Arabs, and he went over to the other side. So he became a companion to Ibn Saud and made his reputation as an explorer. He took these long trips across the Arabian Peninsula uh, by camel and uh, became quite famous for this. He would go out for weeks or months at a time into the deep desert, uh, making maps, which was very useful to the empire, as it turned out, uh, looking at archaeological sites come back, write a book about it, have it published in England, give a series of lectures in England, get money, go back. Um, he eventually uh, became a, a citizen of Saudi Arabia and an advisor to Ibn Saud into the late 1920s and helped Ibn Saud break loose of the British Empire and associate himself with uh, the United States and uh, the oil companies. Right, he helped with a very important negotiation with Standard Oil, right? With That's Standard it. Oil, yes. You did read the book very carefully, didn't you? That is. Uh, <laughs> so, but it's very important because that was the independence, that was kind of the new energy, was the Americans, and it gave Ibn Saud, it became Saudi Arabia, the autonomy, really, to build his own country. That's right, and it was a stepping stone in Franklin Roosevelt's plan to uh, take over the British Empire. So St. John Smith, I mean, St. John Philby was very kind of very an adventurer, part of the empire, part of the intellectual elite. And so the son is follows somewhat in the same kind of steps. Right, and kind of skeptical about the empire. On the other hand, James Angleton came from a completely different background. Uh, his father, uh, James Hugh Angleton, came from this little farm in, in Indiana uh, where the family just couldn't quite make it uh, in the 19th century. He uh, became a, a school teacher for a little while. He went to school uh, teacher training college and then like uh, Huck Finn, he lit out for the territory, and he went up to uh, Idaho, which was a complete frontier town at the time, uh, Boise. Uh, he became a salesman, a candy salesman for a while, and then he hooked up with the National Cash Register Company, 
which was a, a cutting-edge technology firm in 1905, 1910, sort of thing. It was the latest thing. And he'd go around, uh, it was said, with a cash register on a mule to various little towns in Idaho, say to the store owners, look, here's a new thing, it's a cash register. And it works like this, and he had to do training to teach them how to use a cash register. He was a terrific salesman, and he went up the ladder fairly uh, quickly in the national cash register system. At the beginning of his time there, uh, there was the uh, uh, Pershing expedition to Mexico against Pancho Villa. And uh, Pershing was assisted by the uh, state militias. And one of them was the uh, Idaho State Militia. And James Hugh Angleton went down to Mexico where he found the inevitable beautiful Mexican young lady who he took back, married, and they had uh, three children. The oldest, who was named James after his father, and Jesus after his mother's father, uh, went to school, elementary school in Idaho, not, not to an exclusive private school as Kim Philby did. And then uh, his father became a vice president of NCR. They moved first to Dayton, which is where the headquarters were. And in the early 1930s, uh, he, James Hugh Anglin, was sent on a trip to Europe to look at what was going on with NCR's branches there. He looked around and he came back and he said to his uh, boss, look, I'll buy the branch in Italy. So he bought the NCR uh, franchise in Italy and moved the family to Milan. They went from a quite ordinary three-bedroom bungalow in Dayton to a palace in Milan. And that's where uh, James Angleton, when we're talking about, uh, continued his education. And when he was about 16, his father decided that he needed to have more, he needed to be a ruling class Englishman. And he uh, looked around England and he found a uh, high school, which was a private school, which they called public school. Uh, and he went there. And he very rapidly assimilated to English ruling class culture. That's it. And when he graduated, he went to Yale. And the uh, sequence of events that I started with took place at Yale. He was very he was very close to Ezra Pound, which was kind of dicey, because Ezra Pound was a fascist broadcasting against the United States for the Italian government. Right. So he, he had credible uh, literary connections, like E.E. Cummings, some very sophisticated people. But I think both the parents, were, both of his father, the fathers of Philby and Angleton were remarkable. Like, I think Angleton can be likened to kind of a tech success story. Yeah, Angleton was a self-made businessman. Uh, he, when he was in Italy, he became head of the American Chamber of Commerce in Italy. He was the representative of American business in Italy. 
And since it was the late 1930s, the Italians he uh, worked with were part of the Mussolini regime, which is kind of interesting. But if you look at the standard paper, the New York Times, as it were, of, of Italy, Carrera della Sera, whenever they have an event involving Americans, James Hugh Angleton is there welcoming the visiting senators and so forth. This is a long way from Boise, Idaho. Ken Philby. Huh? No, please continue. Ken Philby uh, went to the same uh, private school in England that, had, that his father had mm -hmm. gone to. He did pretty well. Uh, he then went to Trinity College, Cambridge, which was uh, also where, where his father had gone. This was in the early 1930s. Um, here, there was a, a kind of break. The uh, Europe was not in good shape in the 1930s. It was the Depression. It was particularly bitter in Britain because it, the Depression for most people in Britain had started just after the First World War. During the First World War, uh, working people got... Uh, higher wages, better working conditions, because they were needed to support the war effort. As soon as the war was over, the employers lowered the wages and the terms of employment were made worse. There was a great strike in the 20s and uh, much bitterness. When Ken Philby went to Cambridge, he fell into a group that was very concerned about this, other undergraduates. He went on kind of tour of the um, special areas, they were called, and saw how the working class lived, which was not well. There was something called means testing. So if you became unemployed, and there were parts of Britain in the north where unemployment was the usual thing, the welfare payments were based on a survival amount of money for the family and nothing else. So if you had two chairs in your sitting room rather than one chair, they would say, you have to sell that extra chair before we'll give you anything. And in the coal mining areas down in, in Wales and, and up around Newcastle, um, it was very often the case that the men would stay in bed all day because if they got up, they would faint from hunger. There's a book by Orwell about this. Their, their lives actually, Philby and Orwell, some overlap in certain parts. They do. It's kind of interesting. I don't know if they knew each other at all, but it was the same sort of thing. Yes. So uh, Philby, does, Philby does well in college. And he joins this group that uh, are kind of amateur Marxists. And then they become more serious Marxists and associate themselves with the Communist Party. He goes to, he graduates and he, he buys a motorcycle and he goes to Europe and rides around. Mid-1930s. Uh, things are pretty bad in Europe. Comes back. Um, makes some connections, goes to Vienna. There's uh, Vienna, Austria was in a revolutionary situation at that time. 
supposed to be in it. He's given an introduction to uh, people who are working for peace and for the and for the working class. He's told uh, communists, of course. Uh, he meets a young woman. Uh, she says, "Why are you here?" He says, "I want to help." She says, "Fine, uh, let's have an affair." He says, "That's great." And then comes uh, a civil war, and he helps people who are working against what was then a fascist uh, dictatorship in Austria. Things got too hot, and the uh, Communist Party uh, of Austria said, uh, your girlfriend has to get out of here. She's going to get arrested. And the only way that uh, that can work will be if you marry her. So uh, Philippi marries Litzy and takes her to London. By this time, he's completely radicalized. And he uh, goes, knocks on the door of the Communist Party in London. He says, hi, I want to join the Communist Party. Uh, they say, uh, how do we know you're not a police agent? What's your name? We'll check you out. So they, they say, come back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, uh, his wife says, uh, look, there's someone I want you to meet. Uh, he meets Arnold Deutsch, who's a recruiter for uh, the common turn, the International Communist Party. Uh, he's like the fellow in Casablanca who wears the white suit. Um, and this guy, Deutsch, says to Philly, look, uh, you can join the British Communist Party and sell the daily worker on street corners, and that's a very good thing, but I have another idea for you. Why don't you go back to Cambridge and tell everybody that you've seen the light and you're a fascist now? and then you can work for us, you can work for peace uh, by infiltrating the far right. Philby uh, says, fine, that sounds like a lot of fun, I'll do that. And because of his father, because his father is so famous, he's able to go get connections. So he goes to the New York Times, to the, excuse me, so the Times of London, and uh, says, I'd like to work for you, be a stringer. And they say, great, we'll send you to Spain where the Spanish Civil War was taking place. Excuse me. No, it's pretty remarkable. So like he turns very young, I think he's only 22, and then starts there. I mean, you said in your book that KGB is directing him, try to do his journalism career and already kind of uh, puppeteering him to get him in the right places at the right time. Yeah. So he goes to Spain as a stringer uh, covering Franco. All the leftists in, in Europe are covering the revolution now, are covering the revolution. He's covering Franco, the fascist. The Times uh, buys a few of his articles and then says, this is great stuff. And then they hire him to regularly write a column, write articles showing how the fascists are fighting against the Spanish government. I found these, and so the, the book uh, includes a study of his initial journalism for the Times of London from Spain, which I don't think anybody else has ever look, looked at. 
he follows uh, Franco to the end of the war. At one point, he's involved in a kind of um, accident. He gets he gets a, a medal that's pinned on him by Franco himself, which becomes kind of a get out of jail free card for him for the next few years. He's pulled back to London. The Times says, well, there's, this is 1940. The Times says, well, there's a war on, and we want you to go to France with the British Expeditionary Force and report from there. So then there's a, a four or five months of journalism covering the British Army in France. And they're interesting articles. And again, I don't think anybody else has ever read these. Um, he's talking, he's, they, talk about how what a wonderful army it is and how the Germans are going to get really badly beaten and then they're Dunkirk and the British are thrown out of, of, of France at that point and Philby is kind of lucky to survive that. He goes back to London. He's looking around for something else to do and he um, runs into his old school friend Guy Burgess um, and they decide that it'd be good if they went to work for the secret intelligence agencies. Uh, and wasn't it, I think you write in the book, Philby's involvement into Section D happened kind of by happenstance. He ran into some lady and said, oh, you'd be good at this. Isn't that correct? Yeah, yeah. But again, it was the father. Oh, the father. Uh, the father puts him in touch with the people and, and they say, who are running secret, one part of secret intelligence service there. And so he comes in for an interview and the uh, superintendent, the supervisor says, well, we don't need to talk very much. I know your people, we'll hire you, which is how British secret intelligence recruited. At the, the time, the uh, Britain, the empire was run by uh, the aristocracy and by the civil servants who had come up through the exam system, the, and those overlapped. The aristocracy was maybe 2,000, 4,000 people at the outside, ruling a quarter of the population of the world. It's amazing. So they all knew each other. And if you read these documents, it's just incredible. It's like everybody is a cousin of somebody else in the British ruling class. It's just, just a small, such a small amount of people. Sorry, sorry. To yeah, yeah. That's why it didn't stay. <laughs> also, the army that way. Is that way? That there was a uh, the equivalent of Secretary of Defense right before the Second World War, who tried to introduce a system of promoting people on their merits rather than by whose cousin they were, and he was fired. So Philby goes into the British secret intelligence system. He ends up in MI6. There are three uh, basic groups here. There was a special branch, which was the equivalent of the cops. There, there was uh, MI5, which took care of business domestically and also in the empire. And there is MI6, which is uh, foreign intelligence. So MI6 is kind of like the CIA. MI5 is kind of like the FBI. He ends up in MI6. 
and in counterintelligence. You have various branches of, of intelligence. There's uh, those who spy on other people, which is intelligence. Those who try to prevent other people from spying on you, which is counterintelligence. And then there's operations, those who uh, try to overthrow other governments. In Britain, that was the SOE during the war, Special Operations Executive. Philby goes into MI6 counterintelligence, and he does really, really well. And he becomes the kind of their exemplary guy. I think that Philby, you're not supposed to try to psychoanalyze people at a distance, but I, th I think Philby was a sociopath. Uh, he was uh, what everyone wanted him to be, and he didn't care. So he was very, very popular on the one hand, and when he did things that people might not want him to do, they didn't notice because he's such a good guy. Right, he's one of us. He's our guy, right? Kind of. He's one of our, we, we, we know his his people, right? It's right. <laughs> really remarkable. This brings us up to the entry of the United States into the Second World War. Angleton, meanwhile, back in Yale, Angleton graduates from. Yale, kind of barely, because he was spending all his time with poets. He goes to Harvard to get a law degree. He's not much interested in that. And then he's uh, drafted, goes into the army. We have the same thing as the British do. So people start pulling strings. And there's a new outfit, the Officer uh, Special Services, OSS, that uh, General, General Donovan has set up. Uh, James Angleton's father had come back to the United States from Italy at the beginning of the war and had gone into OSS and was a major at this point. He talks to Donovan, Donovan talks to other people. They pull James Jesus Angleton out of the infantry, pull him into OSS. Uh, he has all these languages. It's unclear how many languages, but yes, he certainly has Italian and French. Given uh, his mother's nationality, he probably has you know, kitchen Spanish as well. So he's in OSS, he goes through basic training, and he's sent to London to learn to be a counterintelligence person. And the best person to teach him to be a counterintelligence official is Kim Philby. So they uh, always uh, sets up an office, uh, sublets an office from MI6 in uh, the most fashionable possible place in London. And uh, Angleton has a, an office kind of down the hall or next to Philby's office. And Philby says, glad to meet you. We like Americans. This is terrific. Here, I'll teach you all you need to know. And he does, because he knows. After a year or so, Philby uh, has gotten to the point where he's in charge of MI6's efforts in the Western Mediterranean. They sent uh, Angleton to Italy. The OSS wasn't doing very well in Italy. They were kind of confused. So, uh, 
This is about the time when the American and British armies, which had landed first in Sicily, were working their way up and they are reaching Rome. Angleton was put in charge of, first of dealing with uh, people who had come across the front lines and said, oh, I've always been pro-American or pro-British. I just happened to be working with the Nazis for a while. And uh, Angleton would interrogate them and do research and so forth. He was very good at this. And you can go to the National Archives in Washington and there are stacks of flimsy uh, typewriting, copies of typewritten documents documenting all these different interviews that Angleton had done in Italy. He gets promoted. The American and British armies go further and further north. And when he gets into trouble, when he has something that he's worried about, he contacts Philby. Philby has also been promoted, so now he's in charge of counterintelligence in the Mediterranean in general. They develop a system uh, where there, there was the uh, intercept of Nazi communications, the Enigma intercepts, which the Nazis thought were unbreakable. But then there was the Bletchley Park effort and Turing. So what the, uh, the British would do, and they shared this with the Americans, was that they would develop a system where they'd say, okay, we have a secret that you need to have soon, but we don't want to betray that we got the way that we got this. So we'll, uh, we'll say, oh, we got this information when a plane was shot down and it was found there or a submarine was sent, sunk, and we got that information, or someone defected. And so they produced these uh, portfolios of information, some of which came from this ultra-secret source, and some common. And the person who was in charge of this in Italy transmitted from London, from from Philby, was Angleton. Well, Angleton had all this wonderful information. He kept being promoted. And they're fairly young young at that time. I think Angleton was like 26, 27. 27. Uh, very responsible. You said in the book, at a certain point, right at the end of the war, he was running the Italian intelligence services. Like he was like a pro-consul or something. Yes. Uh, towards the end of the the Italians were trying to figure out which way the cat was going to jump. And uh, Angleton was able to contact the head of the military secret intelligence system in Italy, the Italian secret intelligence system. And I think he black, blackmailed him or something like that. So he, the first the Italian military secret intelligence system, then the whole Italian secret intelligence system, and it kept going like that. We're working for Angleton. Also, at the end of the war, Rome was full of spies, all kinds of spies. And among them were uh, people who were working to help set up Israel. They were the people who eventually formed Mossad, the secret intelligence system. And I said, can you help? And Angleton said, sure. So he helped them. 
And that, that was kind of a long, that was the beginning of a long relationship for Angleton, if I remember correctly. Uh, yes, Angleton, most of was, Angleton was running, how should I put it? Angleton was extremely influential in the Israeli secret intelligence system, uh, at least until the late 1960s. I, and I think, yeah, I think you wrote in your book, I think Dulles actually gave him that portfolio kind of in an odd way. I mean, it was, it wasn't like a bureaucrat, it was a bureaucratic kind of outlier. It wasn't really necessary, but he seemed to have, uh, want to have Angleton have that portfolio. Yeah, if you look at an organization chart of the CIA in the 50s, late 50s, what you had was, uh, there was the Western European desk, the Asian desk, the African desk, and Israel. <laughs> And uh, Israel was, was Angleton. I think just for, as a matter of interest that in uh, the late 50s, when the Israelis were trying to develop an atomic bomb, they asked Angleton to help and he gave them some help. That's my understanding. And there's still, I think there's like on the Mount of Olives, there's a, a chair or something with Angleton's name on it or a bench or something to this day. So yeah. he was a friend of, a friend of Israel. Which is interesting because in light of the fact that when he was at Yale, uh, he was hanging out with people like Ezra Pound who were violent anti-Semites. So yeah. at some point he, he switched around. Yeah, it is and interesting. Felby continued to rise and did a wonderful job uh, against the Nazis. At one point, his group, Philby's group, identified every Nazi spy in Spain and sent the list with addresses and phone numbers to Franco's government and said, look, uh, we know who these people are. You're not supposed to have them there. And if you don't get rid of them, we'll do bad things to you. So they were all expelled from Spain, which is a tremendous triumph. As a re reward for being such a good uh, counterintelligence agent, Philby, in the uh, mid-1940s, who was made head of MI6's anti-Soviet division after, after the end of the war. Who better? Since all, all through the war, he had been taking all the information he had gotten that he was uh, submitting to through the uh, chain of command in England. He had made copies of all of this and sent it all to Moscow. Right. I mean, there was a part in your book where it's like he was transferring information every like every three days. Like it seemed like he was almost on like a industrial scale of sending information. It was. It seemed like it wasn't just drops every month or something, right? Oh no, it's vast amounts. You're perfectly right. Vast amounts of information. And since he was uh, a department head and was, uh, we knew his people. No one followed him. No one suspected. They just, all this stuff went out and went to Moscow. He wasn't an agent. There's a division here that, that people get confused about, including me sometimes. And in secret intelligence, there are officials. These are people who have pensions and civil service ratings. And this is true across the board. So Angleton was an official uh, first of all, uh, well, he was in the army and OSS, but then he became an official in the later organizations and uh, official in uh, 
the CIA. I think he was at the top of the rating too, something like GS-18. Philby was an official in MI6. He had pension rights, civil service status, all that thing. Uh, certain number of days of leave you could take. Then there are agents. Agents are people with contracts. They're not officials, but they have a contract with an intelligence agency and they're paid kind of piecemeal. Uh, we'd like you, I found some documents last year. Uh, the CIA said, had his contract with a fellow and they said, we'd like you to go to Africa and kill Patrice Lumumba and we'll pay you this amount for doing that and over these number of months. And if you're killed, uh, tell us your next of kin and we'll give them a, a bonus for your death. Those are agents. And then there are sources. A source can be like Philby, someone who's uh, sending lots and lots of information over and knows what they're doing. And then there are sources where uh, an a intelligence official or an agent will have lunch with somebody and get information from them. And that source wouldn't even know that this person was working for a foreign power. That was everybody else. So Philby was an official for MI6. He was a source to Soviet intelligence. He wasn't an agent, except at the end of his life. So. Right, like he changed the chain. I mean, the, the story gets very rich because you write in your book that the U.S. intelligence service was already infiltrated before it even started because of Philby. I mean, it's yeah. really an incredible story. Your story and the way that their lives interchange, because a lot of Americans, they may see Philby as merely a continental or a European element, but he was very much involved and lived in D.C. And Angleton and him were friends. A lot of people don't understand how close they all were with Burgess and all these other characters were in the U.S., when uh, the, the war ended, when the Second World War ended, uh, Truman dissolved OSS. And uh, that left certain segments of it kind of floating around. And one was the counterintelligence division that was in Italy. Uh, Angleton went to London with his, with his boss and uh, met with Philby and said, what are we to do? How are we to uh, structure ourselves so we'll have a continuing counterintelligence force? And Philby was nice enough to buy them lunch and give them advice. And that was the kind of relationship they had. Once the CIA started, Angleton went, went to Washington and he had a series of gradually more important positions with the early CIA. Philby, as head of the anti-Soviet division of MI6, was uh, fairly successful. He knew people uh, and would help plan uh, MI6 operations against the Soviet Union and tell the Soviet Union about them. And somehow or another, the operations would fail. He was appointed as the uh, British Secret Intelligence representative in Washington in the late 1940s, not only for MI6, but for MI5 as well, and for other even more secret things. So he goes to Washington. 
and uh, there's a reunion. He and Angleton say, uh, glad to meet you, let's have lunch. And so they had a series of, they would have lunch and then they'd go to cocktails and then they'd have dinner. Uh, Philby's position as head of, uh, the head representative of intelligence with the British embassy put him in charge of communications. So everything that went from London to the British embassy in Washington went across Philby's desk. And Philby would make two copies. One copy went to where it was supposed to go and the other copy would go to Moscow. A lot of this, was, there were two things that were the major points here, I think. Uh, one was the atomic bomb. And the, there had been an agreement between the United States and Britain to develop the atomic bomb as a collaborative project. And in those days, and from 46 into the early 50s, the United States was welching on the agreement. He was saying, it's ours, you can't have it. The other thing was uh, roll back. There was a policy of uh, hot shots in the CIA and other parts of the American government and parts of the British government to uh, roll back Soviet influence in Europe. They thought that uh, if they did that, if they could uh, remove Soviet power from Eastern Europe, that the Soviet system would collapse. Which turned out to be right 50 years later. They started with Albania as the weakest point in the Soviet system. And they took a group of uh, exiles from, Al from Albania and they trained them about how to overthrow a government. They put them on, they parachuted them at night into Albania and they put them on fast boats that arrived at night in little coves where they would all get killed. And this was very, very discouraging for the uh, MI6 and for the CIA. They couldn't figure out what was going on. What was going on, of course, was the coordinator of this project on the British side was Kim Philby. So he had lists of names, dates, times, so on. He would uh, send those to Moscow, Moscow would send them to Albania, and things didn't work. It's just incredible. And didn't he get, didn't, wasn't he honored by the Soviet Union in 45 with merits, like in absentia? Yeah, like that was that was real good. We've got a medal for you. We'll keep it here for you. Yeah, and so he's getting garnering these accolades from the Soviet Union. He's one of us here for the UK and the US. Uh, you know, they they they're getting basically spoon fed information on how to how to run intelligence from Kim Philby. It's really off the charts. Yeah, he became part of what was called the Georgetown set. In, in Washington, along with Angleton and the publisher of the Washington Post and certain high officials in the uh, State Department, certain high officials in the Atomic Energy Commission. And so he was right at the center of all this kind of information. Right. So he's garnering information about all these people's lives and just their relationships and drinking with Angleton. And living with Burgess too, right? At somewhere, yeah, I think Burgess was in the basement for some reason. <laughs> That's unclear why that happened. 
And something uh, weird happens, like you show in the book, like the CIA gets super suspicious of these guys, but the guys in the UK, you know, they don't seem to key in. They're not as, they're more credulous than the, the Americans, right? About what's going on. It depends on which Americans, but yes, they, they, he was one of our people. You know, what are you, what are you doing? You, you come to the American, you have no culture. One of the things that Philly saw was the effort to uh, decode the Venona uh, correspondence. When the Nazis had gotten close to Moscow in 1940, late 41, uh, it was Panic City. They uh, had no resources, extra resources, and the standard way of sending secret communications broke down. So the uh, American and British uh, listeners to these broadcasts, shortwave broadcasts, recorded uh, the, the Soviet messages between Moscow and New York and Moscow and London and so forth, which were just strings of numbers. They, they didn't mean anything uh, in themselves. But the system had broken down, and so there were certain flaws in it. They, both the Americans had uh, a couple of geniuses working on this, the British had early computers, Turing. And about 1949, 1950, they started breaking into the, 1949, they started breaking into the system. And they were able to decipher certain things. Like, if you look at it, they're, they're like four or five sentences and then some sentence fragments and that kind of thing. But it was enough to find out that there was a, had been a, a leak in the British Embassy in the 1944-1945 With some deduction, they realized that it was Donald McLean, who was one of the spies out of the Cambridge Five, and a friend, had been a friend of Philby's at school. Philby was on the committee that was trying to determine who it was, who was the person who was looking at documents. <laughs> and uh, for a few weeks, he kept saying, well, you know, it looks like McLean, but it's probably Jones. And everybody would go after Jones. Uh, he decided that this was, he couldn't keep doing this. And he had to warn McLean. At that point, McLean was head of the American desk for the British Foreign Office. But McLean is head of the American desk in charge of all diplomatic communications between uh, diplomatic uh, maneuvers between the British Empire and the United States. And Phil Lee was in Washington as the person in charge of all intelligence. So, uh, Philly says, well, we have to get word to McLean because he's uh, he's having a nervous breakdown and we can't uh, mail it or anything like that. So the way to do this is for Guy Burgess to get out of the basement and get himself sent to London. So Guy Burgess says, oh, that's easy. I'll uh, get it driving under the influence ticket. So we got three and was put on a ship and sent back to London. Right. And they were very just clever. They were very clever people. So there was all these covers and stuff. Burgess gets sent back to warn McLean. But that's when the CIA or the Intel, American Intel, gets really suspicious about who warned McLean, right? Yes. They're, they're getting very suspicious. They decide that they're going to 
interrogate McLean and find out what's going on, what's really going on. Um, so they uh, decide to do this on a Friday, but it's the weekend, you know, you can't do anything on a weekend. <laughs> and somehow McLean and Burgess get the word that this is going to happen. So uh, Burgess picks up McLean and they go to Moscow. People back in, uh, meanwhile, back in Dodge, the British intelligence service and particularly the FBI say, uh, this isn't looking good. There's something weird about Philby. And you better uh, get him back to London and interrogate. So the Brits say, okay, we'll do that. But, you know, he's a good guy. We know his people. Yeah. He's our guy. I mean, but <laughs> so they're living to, he and Burgess have a fairly close relationship. And one of the clever things that you point out in your book is like Philby made this analysis writing saying, yeah, Burgess could be a spy. Like yeah. he actually kind of kept the act going. It was really incredible. Like, oh yeah, we've got the facts. He's got a sun lamp. He f travels frequently. And then I'm afraid very little doubt Burgess had available the essential requirements of an espionage agent. So he's hinting at it, but like it kind of shows that he's still doing his job. Like uh, he's on the level. Yeah, and the, the correspondence about the Venona uh, information is just incredible that way. It's amazing. Oh, uh, uh, there's a lot more. I mean, we're almost at 60 minutes. I mean, there's a lot more information. I recommend people get this book and read it because I think it really shows the international character of this spy event and the espionage was really thick. But there's a lot. I mean, I, you brought in MacArthur. I didn't know MacArthur is brought into the Philby thing. There's a lot of other information in this. Golanevsky, who I've covered his book. But uh, where do you, I mean, there's a lot. But can you talk maybe if people take that step to buy this book? What else can people expect to read in it? Well, there's the later career of Philby, which is very interesting. Uh, he's thrown out of the, of MI6. He becomes, uh, he's given a job as a journalist in Beirut. Uh, where he uh, meets his father, meets up with his father, and all the information about the Middle East that's in the British papers, particularly the Observer and the Guardian, in the late 50s and early 60s comes from Philby. So at this point, Philby had to have two pieces of carbon paper. He was sending newspaper articles to the Guardian, he was reporting back to MI6, and he was sending the information to Moscow. He goes to Moscow. Uh, Angleton becomes a dominant figure in the CIA as head of counterintelligence. Uh, the CIA was never penetrated while Angleton was there after Philby left and uh, was kind of a terror for the operators. Every time they tried to put a spy someplace, Angleton said, well, we have to check out his bona fides. And they'd say, no, 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 we want to send him over instantly. And Angleton would say no. So they hated him. And there's still people who hate him for that. Interesting. That's another I mean, story. Yeah, and it just goes on. I mean, he really was a long-term Intel operative, all the way up to Colby. So yeah. um, really a fascinating book, really well-read and very well-researched. You can tell the other aspects of your earlier books, uh, you know, really augmented this book. You recommend, where was the best place for people to get spies and traders? 
I'm afraid Amazon would probably be the best place to do it. And is there an audio book for this one yet? Uh, yes. There's an audio book for the British edition, Kim and Jim. Gotcha, Kim and Jim. So you can listen to that. Probably a British uh, narrator. Like, it was an American. I had to teach oh, him to pronounce the words. Oh, interesting. <laughs> interesting. Thanks so much for your time, Michael Holtzman. And I'll put the, in the show notes a link to your website so people can see your other book and uh, your other list of other books as well. But again, the book we talked about today is Spies and Traitors, Kim Philby, James Angleton, and the Friendship and Betrayal that Would Shape MI6, the CIA, and the Cold War, just published 2021. So, Michael Holtzman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right, take care. Stay there. Stay there. All right, that was perfect. That